It's the Fun to Know Podcast with Dan Buskirk. On today's show, writer and novelist, Mike DeCapany. Because sometimes I think that my New York was always like a, a New York of my, uh, that I put together in my head from Willie DeVille songs and Hubert Selby novels and, you know what I mean? Like this... The, the Pacino film. Uh, Dog Day Afternoon. Dog Day Afternoon. Right, yeah. exactly. Like yeah. that montage at the beginning, you know, uh, kids splashing into the pool and this kind of foreshortened throng of people, you know, on a, on a street. Yeah, that whole New York. I guess that's what gets you here. Is that New York that you put together from all those images? Welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast. I'm Dan Buskirk, and here we talk to artists, writers, and musicians about their lives and work. You can find the Fun to Know podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Leave comments for us there or email us at Fun to Know Podcast, always with a numeral two, at gmail.com. You could help the show out by leaving a review at our iTunes page. Nearly any comments would be much appreciated. On today's show, the writer and novelist Mike DeCapity. In the early 80s, DeCapity began building a cult audience for his free-floating fiction when punk legend Richard Hell's literary magazine, Cuz, excerpted DeCapity's unfinished novel Through the Windshield in its first three issues. The novel is a gorgeously written reverie, on Mike's hometown of Cleveland, as seen through the eyes of a young working-class dreamer being given a tour of racetracks and bookie parlors by his tail-spinning older friend Ed. DeCapity's love of music imbues his work, which contains many musical references, and his work has attracted an audience especially among musicians. Mike did numerous liner notes for releases from the jazz band Curlew, and as we post this episode, Mike has just completed a reading with the acclaimed singer-songwriter Amy Rigby in their hometown of New York City. Coincidentally, our last guest, documentarian Robert Gordon, mentioned after our interview that he was still hoping to direct a film based on DeCapity's Through the Windshield as his first fictional feature. Mike's work, as well as the work of his novelist father, the late great Raymond DeCapity, can be found in Harper's Italian American Reader. Red Giant Publishers has reissued a paperback edition of Through the Windshield. You can get a Kindle edition of his fascinating book through Amazon, as well as his short work, Creamsicle Blue, and chapbooks Radiant Fog and Sitting Pretty. You can find Mike and buy his work direct at sparklestreet.com. I've known Mike since the mid-1990s when we struck up a fast friendship over the counter from the record store where I was working, Streetlight Records in the Noe Valley neighborhood of San Francisco. We met weekly for a few years, Monday nights at his place for dinner while Mike was working on his wonderful and as of yet unpublished novel, Ruined for Life. We hadn't seen each other for almost a decade when I ventured up to the Chelsea neighborhood in New York City to record a conversation with the always engaging Mr. DeCapity, and soon things loosened up as we talked through the late afternoon, gazing at the street far below as the sun set and where you'll occasionally hear an ambulance speed by. We discussed Cleveland, Alice Cooper, Bob Dylan, writing strategies, the changing landscapes of New York and San Francisco, drinking and not drinking, autumnal love, and much more. Mike is one of the most lively and humorous conversationalists I've ever had the pleasure to know, and it's a special pleasure to capture some of his wit and wisdom for the show. Special thanks to a friend of the show, Frank Bellina, who was there with some good technical advice at the Fun to Know podcast's origin, and who helped massage these sound files for some extra listenability. Thanks, Frank. Now, let's head over to Chelsea to begin our conversation. Although first, Mike will read a recent piece. 
I'm walking up Havemeyer when I think, I'd really like a popsicle. Of all things, right? All of a sudden I want a popsicle. I haven't thought about a popsicle in 40 years. Out of nowhere, it's like you're at the mercy of any stray thought. Nixon was president the last time I had a popsicle. But it's a hot day, I quit smoking, whatever it was, I want a popsicle. So I go to a bodega, but they don't have regular popsicles. All they got is crazy multicolored confections, part French tickler, part fireworks, or those long frozen plastic things that burn the back of your throat. I just want a regulation old-fashioned twin pop like when I was a kid. So I go to the supermarket, but you have to buy a box. The smallest box is 12. So I buy a box of 12. And that night I'm lying around watching The Sopranos or something. I eat six of them. I quit smoking maybe three months before. You need something to do while you're watching these shows. When I smoked, I could watch five, six episodes back to back because you're smoking, you're sort of involved with the action. Cigarettes make you part of the action. You're not just lying there. I can't just lie there and watch these assholes for five hours with nothing to do. You know, I need something. Anyway, I ate half the box, six popsicles. And the next night, because it's there, again with the TV, I finished the box. And now, because I did it two nights in a row, it's like a little routine. I make a habit out of everything. So night three, on my way home from work, I stop, buy another box of 12 popsicles. I don't know what my relationship status was at this point that I was free to lie around watching The Sopranos every night eating popsicles. Maybe I was with June. We weren't seeing each other at night until her divorce came through. I must have been with June because I'd only been able to quit smoking by including it in my compact with her, a good faith gesture. The popsicles I wouldn't tell her about. It's too idiotic. Every night back and forth to the kitchen. Now I'll have a red one. Now I'll have a purple one. Sometimes taking two at a time so one of them can start to melt while I'm eating the other one because it's better when they soften up a little. So this goes on for maybe a week. Every three nights I go to the supermarket, buy a dozen popsicles until I go there one night and there are no more boxes of 12. I clean them out. There's only a box of 24. So I have no choice. I buy the box of 24. I cross the line into the unknown. I buy the all-American suburban superhero economy jumbo family pack figuring you know this is crazy but at least it'll last me four days and that night i ate the entire box 24 popsicles back and forth to the freezer now cherry now grape now orange lying on my back peering over my belly like a seal with the remote in one hand and the popsicle in the other and the window fan blowing, taking a disc out, turn it over, start another one, and the sticks and wrappers piling up on the table beside the clock with its minute hand going around and around on this orgy of popsicles, a popsicle apocalypse. You look at a clock during something like this and you realize you're on your own. There's no one watching, no one in charge, nothing prevents you from degenerating to madness and savagery except some voice at the back of your mind. Probably by then I was just trying to get it over with, get finished with The Sopranos and finish off this box so I could close the book on this whole sorry chapter and get on with my life. Nevertheless, I did eat 24 Twin Pops in one night. I woke up the next morning with a purple tongue and a rash on both arms. <laughs> and now I know I can never have another drink. I can never just buy a bag of dope someday for the hell of it or an eight ball because I got people in town. Whatever it is, I can't do it. I can never smoke even one cigarette without mutating into some other type of creature that needs smoke with every single breath. I have to just forget about all that and get on with it. Just get on with what's left of my life. Yes, just keep my head down and set off across the tundra. A little wiser, a little older, 
a little more embarrassed. Because now this is another thing you're capable of, another absurdity. You like yourself a little less. It's like you wash a pet and you see what kind of scrawny, abject little creature has been living under there all this time. It's hard to feel the same about it after. But what are you going to do? Get rid of the pet? You're stuck with the pet, like you're stuck with yourself. So on you go. <laughs> Man, just ruin the popsicles for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so few pleasures left, and even, even popsicles are gone now. Right, because I have no brakes. <laughs> <laughs> How does Cleveland work its way into the mind of, of Mike DeCapity? Well... When I left there, I was, I, Cleveland was a really interesting place to me then, and I was living in a neighborhood on the south, the south side of Cleveland, people call it Tremont too, which is just on the crest of the Steel Mill Valley, and that was a neighborhood I'd grown up spending a certain amount of time with, because my old man grew up there, and my grandmother lived there when I was a kid, and so we used to go there every weekend, and uh and then I got a place there when I when I left home, and uh, that was a real interesting, you know, mix of ethnicities and um, at, at the time, and uh, it was a great great neighborhood. Also, that neighborhood has physical boundaries. There's a there's a valley on one side. There's a river. There's a freeway that cuts it off. So it was sort of like this enclosed, it was like a stage set almost, you know, I mean, at least it allowed me to, because of those boundaries, I was able to get my head around it and see it as, as a set. As a complete world. As a complete world and as a stage where I might, you know, set a novel. Mm -hmm. So I had just started to see Cleveland in that way when I left. So I left with this kind of... Um, you know, soft spot for it and a, a sense of possibility because I had this novel that I wanted to write set there. So I left Cleveland in 85 and I moved to London, but I started writing this novel. I had a little room and I, uh, you know, a typewriter and I only had to work a couple hours in the morning. And so I started writing this novel, which became Through the Windshield. And at that point, I was still really kind of homesick for Cleveland and fascinated by it. And it, you know, it was so different from where I was that, um, you know, my feeling about it kind of informed the, the book I was writing. When, when did the, the bug to become a writer really hit you? I, mean, I guess we should say your father, Raymond DeCapity, a uh, novelist of, of some note who, uh, whose work is uh, pretty profoundly moving. And, uh, you know, he, he saw some success in his life. And he's mm -hmm. part of that Italian-American reader that you yourself are uh, right. part of that came out from Harper's, I guess. Mm-hmm. So having a father as a writer, I guess you're, you're, you're almost there. Well, yeah, I never had to overcome anybody's expectations in order to become a writer. It's not that he encouraged me to become a writer because he had had a lot of hard luck at it. Um, he never had another book published after 1960, I believe, until I published a couple of them. When was that? 35 years later. Yeah. Um, he did have one novel come out in Cleveland Magazine in the 70s, but I mean, he never had a, another book come out until uh, late in life. And um, so he wasn't especially encouraging about it, but he wasn't, he never discouraged me. I never had to, you know, fight to be a writer or to fight to want to be a creative person. I never had to convince anybody of the validity of that. 
When did you first read his work? Oh, I don't remember. But I was a kid. I mean, I was, a, you know, I was a kid. I, I seem to remember reading, you know, whenever I started reading, probably. Yeah. I, I read it pretty early, and the, the language is fairly simple in those novels, so it was possible for me to read it. And I loved those books always, and I still I feel the same about them. Yeah, I can't imagine having that uh, that avenue into your father's, a father's psyche, you know, to really be able to read your father's work and stuff must have, you know, made you understand him and know him in a different way. Yeah. And he didn't talk about writing, really. You know, we, it's not like we talked about writing even when I was, even after I was writing. Um, he wasn't a guy really to talk about 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 writing. He was. A, he didn't say much anyway. Um, yeah, I remember loving those books from from the first, and I still have a very strong feeling for them. There's, I've never read other any other novels like them. They're sort of like mythic or like in a small way they're like folk tales so. oh yeah yeah they, they've hung with me uh, all these years they're certainly they're certainly favorites of mine they give the title of them uh, uh the, his first novel published novel was the coming of Fabrizia, which is the story of his father or a sort of folk tale retelling of the story of his father coming here coming to the states at 14 around the turn of the 20th century and um, getting working his way up on the railroad to become a foreman on the railroad, teaching himself English, and then discovering the stock market with exhilarating and then, of course, disastrous results. <laughs> the story uh, of America. Uh, right. <laughs> um, but, you know, my father's brother, Mike, was also a writer. Older brother, Mike. I think Mike was nine years older than my father. And Mike also wrote a novel about, he wrote a novel called Maria, which was published in the 40s. It was, was the story also of his, of their parents. But because he had grown up much, uh, my grandfather left town, left town after he lost everything in the stock market crash. So my father didn't know him in the same way. So he was free to mythologize him. He was free to make this folk hero out of him because he hadn't grown up kind of under the old man's belt like, you know, you know, like his, uh, like his older brother had. So my uncle Mike wrote this very kind of conventional, earnest, realistic account of his mother and father and their travails. But my father, you know, was free to reimagine the whole story in his own in his own way put a little romance in there yeah 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 mythology really i mean i talked to him about it once and he was saying that he was inspired by the like arthurian legends and the story of the hero you know who who one day will return um yeah it's not just romance it's 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 uh, because that makes it seem sentimental. His books are not exactly sentimental. They're sort of uh, like hero stories in a way. They're folk more like folk tales. I think. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of stories that will uh, circulate in a neighborhood about something you know, some right. character from the neighborhood did exactly. fifteen years ago on Fourth of July or something. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So, uh, so you uh, had a writer in the house with you, but uh, did you, what did you start to think of yourself as possibly being a writer? I mean, 
I was pretty reluctant to adopt that title for myself, for, even after I'd been writing for, I mean, even in when, even when I, I think I was in my 20s already and had already done a certain amount of writing and uh, I still was reluctant to call myself a writer. I don't remember why that was, but uh, I didn't want to pin myself down or something. Or it's almost a working class thing, I think, too, of, of sort of could have been the pretentiousness of the title. You know, I am a writer is, is it quite a proclamation to make. Could have been, yeah, that, that could have had something to do with it. And then when I met my first wife, and uh, she started introducing me as a writer, and, you know... Well, I guess then I felt like I had to do some writing if I was going to, you know, like if I, maybe that was it, my reluctance. I figured if I started calling myself a writer, then I was really going to have to, you know, do some writing, yeah. you know, on an ongoing, on a serious day-to-day, -day, in a serious day-to-day -day way. Like coming to the priesthood, you know, you're, you've, you've yes. got to accept your calling. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. So you started writing this, this, uh, homage to Cleveland when you were in London. So what were you doing in yeah. London? This woman, Susie, that I got involved with was English. Mm -hmm. She came to town to visit uh, her friend Tony Mamoni, who was the bass player in Perubu yeah. at that time. The legendary and, Cleveland band uh, punk rock forefathers. Right. So they lived or Tony lived down, downtown, and he had met Susie on tour, and so she came to Cleveland to, uh, to see Tony and his wife, and, uh, and I met her on that weekend, and the next thing I knew, I was moving to London. <laughs> so I think I met her in August of 85, and maybe by November, I think, November yeah. or December, I had put aside enough money to move over there, and she was living at that time in a in a not a squat situation but a in a uh, housing co-op so it was real cheap there were a bunch of roommates in this rambling old uh i guess it was victorian uh but kind of a something that must have been a, a house an individual house at one point like a row house a townhouse four or five floors and you know stairways going off in all directions and bathtubs here and there and a kitchen and you know just a huge place huge drafty freezing place but it was only 100 pounds a month yeah. and so i didn't really have to work too much she had money because she was going to school and i got a job in a theater on charing cross road i think cleaning up in the morning early in a, not a movie theater a playhouse uh, playhouse and uh, so I would go there in the morning and clean up me and a crew of African guys who probably were professors, you know. <laughs> I mean, they came to work in suits, <laughs> you know. I mean, they probably were professors back home, and now, you know, the only work they could find under the table was, was this kind of work. And so that's what we were doing. I was cleaning up at this place. But it was just a couple hours in the morning, and then I would go home and take a cup of tea up to my this little beautiful attic room I had with flowered wallpaper and work on my book. I, you know, I still have a kind of romantic idea about that room. And um, those are, um, you know, days you always look back on, yeah. you know, when you're just getting started. And the book, uh, kind of a, a rambling ode to, to Cleveland, it seemed like a book you could continue writing almost forever. It really... Uh, I'm sure that's how some readers feel about it, too, <laughs> that they're reading it forever. <laughs> I, you know, 
by the time I wrote that book, I had also written, I had already written a book of journals. But I wrote this book of journals when I was 18. I, I mean, I typed them and it circulated them. They weren't like private journals. Okay. They were, you know, I was showing my, these installments to, my, to friends and everything. Mm -hmm. And I did that for a year. And that book sort of became the template for Through the Windshield. Because, you know, Through the Windshield alternates, um, you know, snatches of dialogue and bits of narrative with prose poems about the weather. You know, I just did that very naturally. That's how it came to me. I mean, if you're writing in a daily way, if you're writing something every day, some days you don't have a story to tell. You just want to talk about the clouds, right? So this is how I put together this book of journals. And that's how I, that sort of became the template for Through the Windshield. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a I, I was going to say there's a poetry to the writing, but there's there's true poetry in the book as well. Uh, you know, I don't have any right to call myself a poet, I you know. But, um, but except that the way that book works is not really the way most fiction works. There's no plot, you know. You're not trying to get from one place to the other, which I think is frustrating for people who read that book especially for someone who has to read it in a hurry, you know, because he wants to write, read the book and review it and get on with his life. It must be a very frustrating book. I'm saying that because somebody recently reviewed the book. Oh, really? Found it interminable. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece of writing. I mean, the, the quality of the writing itself is, is the attraction to the book almost. You know, that's, that's why it escapes needing to have a plot. It's so beautifully written and so filled with details and, and uh, stories and... It's it's an it's an impressive work. It's, well, it's, I, yeah, I hope so. I mean, I, I that's I want it to be something that you I I want this to be a, like a place that you go and these people are, to be people that you are spending time with. Let's talk about some of the people that are in the book. Who, who are the characters in the book? Well, the main character, uh, the, the narrator is me, basically, when I was 20, I don't know, 22, 23 years old, driving a cab in Cleveland. And the other main character is his friend, Ed, who's a, uh, a guy that works driving a truck. When he works, he works driving a truck out of Union Hall, you know, like a beer truck soda truck wine truck and he's also a gambler and he's a storyteller and Danny the guy telling the story is this kind of romantic wide-eyed kid and Ed is showing him this whole other side of Cleveland that he's never seen you know they go out cruising around at night and they're you know it's showing them where the hookers are and showing them where the bookie places are and and uh you know they go to the track together and they sit up all night uh you know just parked on detroit avenue um you know sipping coffee listening to a ball game that they have a bet on hopefully the book takes this zen approach that you know allows allows a reader to be one of the characters in the book or allows the reader to be there present with with them you know without worrying about what's coming next those are the main two characters 
there's also a uh, kind of fucked up uh, drug casualty named Angie who, who Ed takes under his wing. <clears throat> she does a little bit of hooking and he kind of looks out for her. He's not her pimp or anything. He doesn't take any money off her. He's just trying to look out for her, you know, before she, you know, disappears again into the city. Um, and then there are these incidental characters, I mean, not incidental characters, but there are other characters like Ed's Uncle John, who is a kind of crackpot, desperate gambler who's, you know, every night betting these elaborate sports parlays. He has nothing. He still lives with his mother, doesn't have anything else going on. And so Ed books these bets for him just to give his uncle something to do until, unfortunately, his uncle hits one of these massive bets, you know, for like that he's only he's bet ten dollars on a seven teamer or something and wins hundreds and hundreds of dollars, which now Ed is you know, obliged to try and come up with to pay him off. <laughs> Those are the main characters. Did you wrap this book up in London or did you, you probably there was probably a lot no. of writing and rewriting in it. Right? Yeah, but I didn't even finish the first draft in London because I was back and forth between London and Cleveland for a couple of years. Oh, I think during all of that I was still working on it. And then I came to New York in 1987. What was the impetus to come to New York? Well, my girlfriend at the time, Susie, was about to get out of... Uh, she was getting out of school, and she wasn't going to come live in Cleveland because she was... a you know, like a big city girl. She was from London. She wasn't going to come live in Cleveland. And I'd always wanted to live in New York, so we compromised. I mean, New York is a hell of a compromise, but, yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, anyway, I moved up here to uh, Williamsburg. Tony Mamoni was living <clears throat> in a building on Grand Street in what was then a very cheap neighborhood and a really great alternative. You could have a car over there, and I think Tony was only paying $300 a month. I rented a place in the same building maybe a couple of years after he had moved there, and mine, by then it was already 600 But that was still pretty great. Really, when I moved up here or right before was when I really kind of hit my stride with the book and realized what I was doing and, that, and that started to have fun with it. Yeah. I think before then I was just sort of finding my way and, you know, I would have little breakthroughs, or I suppose, but I, all of a sudden the thing opened up in front of me. Susie wasn't here yet in New York. She was still finishing school, and so I had this place to myself, and I had no furniture in this place except for a kitchen table and a chair and a typewriter and maybe a little square of foam or rect rectangle of foam that I slept on. And I had one tape, and I had a Walkman, one of those Walkman with the speaker so you could listen out loud. Oh, yeah. I don't think I had headphones on the thing. Wouldn't have occurred to me to listen to headphones. And I used to come home. I got a job on a painting crew, and I would come home every night. On the, I would get off the subway and buy a half pint of bourbon, a couple of coffees at the Puerto Rican bakery across the street, and I would take those upstairs, and I would roll cigarettes and sip this whiskey and sip coffee till you know midnight every night and listen to this one tape which was dylan in the band at, at albert hall uh, i mean it was not really at albert hall but that's what they called it then the which the was classic, just a, uh, yeah the manchester the show you're a liar yeah that judas. show judas yeah. right <laughs> i just felt like i was on top of the world with that you know i just played that tape over and over and wrote every <laughs> every night it was just a, one of the great greatest times of my life it was really a blast to you know to have the time to 
come home and do that every yeah. night. The Travis Bickle type discipline. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, you know, it turned out that to be able to just, conf, you know, confine myself to a half pint of whiskey every night uh, looks from, from here like a kind of discipline because that didn't last for very long. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, after a while, it was a pint every night and then, you know, and, you and know, a and, pint then it, and popsicles. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, or whatever else you need to counteract the, um, you know, to counteract the whiskey, so that you're out prowling around the neighborhood looking for it, and you know, then things get much more complicated. And and uh, but there's this brief period when you when you've just started drinking and painting or drinking and writing or whatever it is you do, when it works, and you just then you spend years and years ever trying, you know, trying to get back to that, <laughs> which you don't ever. Yeah. So uh, that was a real uh, point of liftoff for you. Uh, yeah, yeah. With, with the book, yeah. Yeah. Um, when does it start get, start getting carved into a into a real book that you're showing? I suppose I finished it. I finished it in that same room in London. We went back there for a wedding or something and stayed several weeks. Maybe we stayed a month at that same place where we used to live because we still had friends there. And I finished it in that same room. <laughs> <laughs> And I think that must have been about 1990. Yeah. So that was, you know, How I mean, many? nobody takes five fucking years to write a first draft of a novel. Or maybe <laughs> that was, by then it wasn't really a first draft. But somehow it all took five years to come together before I started, before it was in the kind of shape that it needed to be in for me to start showing it around. Yeah. And then I think by then I had already started, you know, I had some pub, a couple of excerpts published uh -huh. from it, Richard Hell published excerpts from it in three issues of a magazine he was doing at that time called Cuz. I, I mean, I was already thinking pretty seriously of the book. I had already been doing readings and everything. Where were you it. doing readings at? How, how did the reading thing come about? Did that, did that start to introduce you to a uh, it came community about, of writers? It was something I never had any interest in or intention to do, but a singer named Angel Dean that Tony was working with told me that she read in I forget what paper, maybe the New York Press, but anyway, what, one of the one of the newspapers that uh, Richard at that time was accepting submissions. He was going to be hosting the Monday night reading series at the at St. Mark's Church at the Poetry Project, yeah. which was this venerable institution. Even then, it had been around already for thirty years. And she said, why don't you send him something, you know? Uh, because he was also going to be doing this magazine. That was in this article, too. That's what he was up to then. He was going to be doing a little magazine and hosting these readings. So I didn't have any interest in the readings. I just sent him some stuff. And he called, and he was very interested, and he, he wanted to publish them. But he said, but I also want you to do a reading. So that's how I got started with that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like I said, I never thought of myself as a performer in any way. What did you think of Richard Hell when you met him? I mean, he's uh, somebody who loomed heavily in my teenage years, discovering that Blank Generation record and Destiny Street. Uh, what, what was he like when you when you first met him? It sounds like he was pretty encouraging. Oh yeah, very yeah. He was a sweetheart. Yeah, yeah he was he was uh, very very encouraging. I mean, he published me. He was yeah. the first person to publish me. So it doesn't you can't. And you later be more. you later worked on a chapbook with him, didn't you? He later had a. Um, a chapbook series uh -huh. that um, called Cuz, same name as the magazine, and he and Will Patton and Meta Madsen, P 
painter, um, were publishing this series. He was editing, and the, the, together they were publishing this series of uh, chapbooks. So there's one of mine. There's a Maggie Debris, which is fabulous. This is a Rene Ricard, and uh, Richard has one. And um, Will has a great one, too, called Lassitudes of Fire. And, uh, yeah, so that came out in 99. That was yeah. later. Yeah, so, so I, I don't want to but By then, we'd you been, you know, friends for a while and, yeah. and uh, you know, worked together. And but he, he brought you out things. to the, the St. Mark's readings? Yeah, I started going to them to, to hear the readings. I'm not sure that I'd ever been to a reading before I went to St. Mark's. Not a lot of poetry readings in Cleveland? Well, there probably were, but I wasn't. it wasn't the kind of thing. You know, when I was... In the years just before I left there, I wasn't going out to see bands or anything. I was hanging around with this with this guy Ed, you know, <laughs> betting horses and betting basketball games and driving around all night. You know, I, I didn't. I mean, sort of made a conscious decision that I didn't want anything to do with all that. You know, I didn't want to. I don't know. I just almost made a decision to live like an old man or something, or like somebody of a different generation. So. Probably those readings that I started going to on Monday nights at the church were uh, were the first readings I went to, and I mean I saw all kinds of great people. Saw you know David Wanarovich and Rene Ricard and Eileen Miles, and you know it was great to be ex exposed to that scene. Music plays a, a big part in, in your writing. You often uh, come back to, to quote music and uh, to quote different songs. Tell me about uh, when you discovered music as a kid. To me, that's always you know that exciting moment as a kid when you sort of uh, well, find Alice your own Cooper. Music. Nobody more exciting than that to a kid. <laughs> <laughs> me as well. My older brother got the Alice Cooper records, and being a famous Monsters of Filmland fan, I me was too. definitely halfway right, right. there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know it's funny. The stuff that you listen to before you, you know, the stuff you're really crazy about before you develop a critical sense, you hear in the same way forever. Like, I mean, I, those records still sound great to me, those, those Alice Cooper records, the couple that do, you know, yeah. they don't all, but, or like the Bowie records or whatever. I mean, June and I were walking around one night here, and we walked past the movie theater on 19th Street, and he was standing outside. Alice Cooper, oh, waiting wow. to go see like some horror movie, <laughs> and, you know, with an H and M bag. Yeah, and I still felt like, wow, that's fucking Alice Cooper. You know, like I mean, you know, you don't stop and look at people in New York. You know, people you're kind of unfazed by <laughs> celebrities here. But uh, him, I I had to see stop me right in my tracks. It's interesting for somebody who was you know sort of like represented evil or something in some way there was there was a very human side to that character that he was playing as well i remember as a kid feeling bad for him and uh uh raped and freezing <laughs> <laughs> is that the one where he's got no friends because they read the papers oh no that's no, no, no more Mr. Mr. Nice, nice guy, guy. Okay, right yeah. right yeah sure because he's misunderstood <laughs> that's that's the key to those songs appeal right i mean like 18 yeah is also like that school's out <laughs> No more Mr. Nice Guy. What's the one? Teenage Lament 74. <laughs> <laughs> Under My Wheels. <laughs> yeah, those are great records. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I've, I've always been more inspired by music than than by reading or by my I'm probably everybody is but I mean yeah. as a writer inspired to write I've been more inspired to write by, by lyricists or no, well by the whole thing the whole package not just the lyrics but by listening to music than I have been by you know reading novels like very few novels that I've ever read have inspired me yeah you know, to, in any way as you reach those teenage years and you really started to you know music starts to become part of your identity what, what, what were your who were your obsessions? You know, when did you discover the the people that you were excited by? Uh, the Velvets. Yeah. Although not when I first heard them, I remember buying Loaded. You know, I must have been reading about them, reading references to them. And, yeah. I mean, I'd already been listening to Bowie, and I was really crazy about Bowie. Oh, and the and Frank Zappa, I was really crazy about the Mothers. Uh, anyway, I must have been reading magazines too, in which these people were talking about the Velvets uh, and. Yeah. Uh, and, um, I got or, that Lou Reed Rock and Roll Diary album, which had one or two sides of Velvet Underground stuff, and that, that really lit me on The fire. one with the black and white cover, a portrait of him. close-up yeah, yeah, cover. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, I seem to remember... Oh, I remember. I, what, you want, I want you to read this thing about music? Yeah, I sure. have this thing. Sure. And I don't know. Maybe I won't read this, Dan, because it's not really about the people I'm talking about. It's about uh, it's about all these kind of shitty <laughs> people that I listened to before I found the cool people. All right, adventures in music, War Child, Jethro Tull. I bought this record in junior high, maybe seventh grade. I got it at J.P. Snodgrass. On Sundays, they advertised their sales in the paper. Albums were three ninety nine and four ninety nine. I could walk there. It was about a mile away, across from Value City. J.P. Snodgrass sold jeans and records. Their logo was a balding, bearded, Victorian or gay 90s looking man in profile with a curling pipe. The kind of image which, even apart from the pipe, appealed to stoners at that time. It was the equivalent to the appeal of a top hat in a rock and roll setting. It was something <laughs> defiant in it, something co-optive about claiming a top hat out of its customary context, whatever that was. At one point or another, I bought or considered buying records by acts as diverse as T-Rex, Leon Russell, Leonard Skinner, Roy Wood, and Alice Cooper because they all featured top hats. J.P. Snodgrass had shallow bins of albums along one wall with new releases displayed above. The rest of the store was jeans and probably denim jackets. I never bought jeans there. I never wore jeans in those days. I wasn't allowed to wear them to school, and I wore old sturdy pants out to play. I never had enough money for albums. I used to daydream about winning a shopping spree at a record store, and I'd list and relist in my head the albums I'd get. This would have been the absolute height of good fortune to me. One Sunday, the paper listed Lou Reed's Coney Island Baby on sale. I bought it for the cover. Lou Reed in one of those tuxedo t-shirts that were popular at the time, holding a bowler. I thought that was very cool. Probably reminded me of Cabaret, and so I associated it with a certain strain of gender-bending decadence, which was correct, but I was disappointed that the music was so mild. My ear wasn't yet tuned to that level of subtlety. It was tuned to David Bowie and Alice Cooper. I was sharp enough to hear through Kiss, though. I bought their first record because of the cover, the makeup, but wasn't fooled by the music, which was generic and not at all what I was looking for, which was, of course, theatrical necrophiliac faggotry. <laughs> 
War Child appealed to me because of its classical, historical, and bardic pretensions, the richness of its arrangements, and sense of sweeping Old English circus gesture. I bought into Ian Anderson's Elizabethan bum act or Fagin act or whatever it was. I dug his leotards and knee-high boots and codpiece and frock coats and his frizzy mane and probably would have disastrously shown up that way for homeroom if my mother hadn't been around to stop me. During my sixth grade fascination with Sly Stone, she blocked my plan after I'd called three tailors to acquire a skin-tight black leather and silver lame jumpsuit. <laughs> Plus, skating away on the thin ice of a new day really sounded like skating away. Bungle in the Jungle was a hit on the radio then. Hearing it reminds me of being taken out for my birthday to a sit-down restaurant that served ribs with my buddy Alex and then to see a show, either Liza Minnelli or Marcel Marceau. One sounds as improbable as the other, but I asked and was taken to see both. Alex and I were flabbergasted that a mime of Marceau's renown was doing the old mime chestnuts of riding an invisible carousel, climbing an invisible ladder, and trying to escape from a shrinking box. It's one of my earliest memories of seeing through hype. So I guess a mime's a mime. Liza Minnelli, I'm not sure how I got mixed up with. I'd seen her television special, Liza with a Z, and was bowled over by the force of her talent. And then I saw a picture of her in the studio singing background vocals for Alice Cooper, my true archangel at the time, which secured my respect. The artists you follow lead you to others. The cheesier the music, the cheesier its intersections. So with Alice Cooper, I got Liza Minnelli and also Salvador Dali, who'd done a hologram of Alice in a tiara, looking like a soused old beauty queen holding a small Venus de Milo. It was a couple of steps up artistically to David Bowie, and from him I got Jean Genet. I read that Jean Genie was a euphemism for Jean Genet and picked up the maids. And, less fortunately, an interest in mimes. <laughs> Mimes were popping up everywhere in those days. There was, the, there was also the sensational Alex Harvey band, little remembered now, but at peak popularity then. Alex Harvey wore a striped shirt. That was his thing. His persona was that of a Scotsman who'd been press-ganged into naval service. Why there was a mime on board, I don't know, but there he was. Zal Clemenson, mime guitar player. What a mess. Mimes, flutes, top hats, bagpipes, a rattle of military drums, and off we march across the battlefield of adolescence. So when you ask about like what the music was that I was interested in at that time, I guess the music that after I found my way out of this, you know, all this pretentious shit, you know, like Jethro Tull and... Uh, you know, these other the other bands. Um, I remember the, the the radio commercials they used to have for new albums. Like it's the new record from the sensational Alex Harvey band. <laughs> like, that was enough to get me excited. Right, right, like, right, that right. does sound cool. Right, right, right. right. A couple snatches of the hooks. <laughs> right, like, right. You're, you're ready. I'm, I think Alex Harvey might be my thing. You know? <laughs> right, right. Because you're looking for like somewhere to. You know, hit your wagon, right? Yeah, something that speaks to you. Some, yeah, and for some, you know, speaks to your identity or whatever. You know, you're still putting it all together. Yeah, yeah. But when I heard the Velvets, not when I first heard the Velvets, because that was loaded and that just sounded like the Raspberries to me. It still does. <laughs> I don't. I can't fathom that record. But 
when I and then then I must have made another attempt an attempt and I went to buy uh, white light white heat oh. and I remember I must have had had time to play it once before going out with my parents or something for some reason I had to leave the house and I remember sitting in the back of this old Impala just vibrating after hearing Sister Ray and that became like you know I had to hear that every day I mean I had no idea that music could really do that for you that it could that it could be that it could be about your life you know that it could be about your your life or anyone's life you know that wasn't some you know ridiculous <laughs> you know Jethro Tull thing or Alice Cooper thing you know what I mean like uh, you know it was that it could make you see the world in a different way you know? see the world in a different way yeah in a way that was useful to you and that you could apply to the real world yeah yeah, yeah that was so so then I was obsessed with that band how old were you then? What was this discovery? I wasn't that young. I don't know. Maybe I was fifteen or sixteen, yeah. something like that. And I, you know, then I started buying Lou Reed records and you know all the other bands that you find your way to through the Velvets. Plus, it was around nineteen seventy-seven, seventy-eight by then. So by then, I was starting to buy the, you know, the the, the punk records that were coming out. Yeah, First yeah. the Pistols, I remember, you know, making a conscious decision, like I'm gonna go down to the Record Rendezvous, which was this fantastic, historic record store on Prospect downtown. Was there Cleveland. a record wizard there that could help you uh, direct your- Yeah, uh, Jim Jones, yeah. who was, as far as I'm concerned, the most talented musician who, from Cleveland. Yeah, and yeah. part you know, of Perubu as well, right? Later he was part of Perubu, right, Mirrors. What did he steer you towards? Oh, everything. You know, he was just like, uh, like you say, he was like a wizard. You would go there and he would play, he would be spinning records for you. So, and it was, you know, they would, they, he would be turning you on one week to, you know, Richard Thompson, and um, who was pretty obscure then, you know, yeah. or another time to Nick Drake, or another time to, oh, you know, just, he, he knew everything. That's why. That's why you and me still have that romance towards record stores. At least, you know, speaking yeah. for myself, was that it really was that place where discoveries were made as a kid. And uh, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, what was your place? What was my place? Oh, my place was. Uh, there's been a lot of places, of course. There's uh, right. the first place was the you know uh, the. Uh, farmer's market where they sold 45s uh-huh you so you know, started buying 45s first i started buying 45s give me that ding by the pipkins <laughs> if you remember <laughs> it's a british novelty song uh-huh. with tack piano yeah um i don't so, remember but i can I, but it's funny because my first the first record that i actually asked for had to have was also a novelty record i think uh, it was that uh pretty sure it was the hot butter album is that oh, what it's called? Sure. Was that the name? Yeah. Popcorn was the song. Popcorn, yeah. And Hot Butter was Hot the butter, name of was, the, uh, probably not really a band, but it was... It was uh, the, one of the electronics guys. Was it Perry right. or Kingsley? Well, I forget which. I think it was Perry who uh, was behind Hot... Yeah, for me, actually, I was trying to get Manamana. Oh. And uh, I asked for Manamana. Like, we don't have Manamana. Here's, give me, give me that ding. What? What is Manana? You mean from Sesame Street? If it came part of Sesame Street, it actually goes back to it was an Italian pop song. Oh, oh. Um, 
I'm going to remember the name of the uh, somebody we did a lot of soundtrack work uh-huh. um, but that's what I wanted Menomina and he thought give me that ding was nonsensical enough it would be a good replacement so I think that was I think the, the guy at the thrift at the farmer's right, right. market gave me that instead um, but then there was getting records out of the library was a big thing uh, mm-hmm. there's a place in town called the Sound Explosion where they had the Phi Zappa Crappa record and they had records and then once I could finally drive I could drive to Newark Delaware and I like it like that in Wonderland, were two places that had independent music, and that's where I got my first James Brown records and things like that wow. as well. Well, you were growing up in a really music, in a real music city. I wasn't. Cleveland really wasn't at that time. I was growing up in a small town in South Jersey, actually. Oh, so oh, oh! I really had to 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 wrestle to get all that info, you know, from the newsstand. That that was a big part of it. That's a big part of its appeal that you had. Then at least yeah. you had to dig for these things and hunt yeah. them down. It was when I was fifteen. It was chase. going to buy one of the two copies of the Village Voice that came into, you know, the newsstand every week. Yeah, and, and right. I remember Lester Bangs writing about the, the dead Kennedys and things like that mm-hmm. back in the day. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, how hard it was to really dig up information about this music as well. It was. I remember how many rock magazines I was buying at the time because you know you just couldn't get the information otherwise. Oh, I used to love looking at those magazines. Like I don't remember whether it was Rock Scene or New York. I think it was Rock Scene, which was a magazine, mm-hmm. as opposed to the newspaper. And in the back of them, they would have these pictures of these parties. There would be party shots in the back, and I used to just—I was so fascinated by the the groupings of people that would be there. You know, like. You know, here's Tiny Tim, Todd Rundgren, and Colonel Sanders, all at this party. You know what I mean? I just had this idea. It gave me this idea that fame was just this realm where everybody knew everybody else. You know what I mean? It was so exciting to yeah. think of that. You know, David Johansson, you know, uh, Cherry Vanilla, and Salvador Dali, and John Glenn. <laughs> you know, or whatever. <laughs> They all retired to the famous <laughs> retirement community. In the back room at Max's. This might be a time to ask you to read it. You have a stack of things there that you, you could potentially read. I'd love to hear you read another piece if you... Uh... Sure. Okay, I'll read something from... This is a chapbook I published a few years ago called Creamsicle Blue. No, I don't want to read that yet. <laughs> well, you can always edit this out, right? Exactly. This is a, This is a, from a collection of short prose pieces that I wrote for a magazine in Cleveland. I was living in San Francisco, but there was an arts magazine in Cleveland called Angle, and I wrote a monthly column for them. It could be about whatever I wanted. So this one's called April Fool's Day. When I was 15, I walked into one of the mall record stores where a harmonica was playing and looked up as though I was in church. You know how you look up by reflex? Just like that. The record, as it turned out, was Blood on the Tracks, and the song was Tangled Up in Blue. I later found out from the words, though I heard instantly in the music, that the record was about the road. 
It was about a life lived from place to place, person to person, job to job, but ultimately alone. It was about being honest rather than good. It accepted the nature of time and change and imagined life as a series of episodes and entanglements which add up to an idea. The harmonica poured its heart out and the music glittered like sunlight on the spokes of a wheel or the surface of a stream. That moment was one of those recognitions of how things are and are going to be and that simple yet vaulting song has been like a church to me ever since. Springtime always brings me back around to Blood on the Tracks, which is about the presence of the past as much as anything else. The bare branches down Folsom Street are pricked by a needlework of new leaves, and the blue sky is a color you look into rather than at. Yesterday, a Friday, I played the record before I left the house, I took the train to work and sat outside to read for half an hour. Nearby, there were big white blossoms and a potted magnolia. When I got home, my room was cool with late afternoon shadow, and the sky was bright above the alley. I set an ashtray on the trunk by the window, started up blood on the tracks, put my feet up on the desk, and let it roll. It was hard to take. These things get harder as you get older, maybe because you realize they're out of your reach. You realize how difficult they were to achieve, how transparent, what a miracle they are. Beauty walks a razor's edge, someday I'll make it mine. I sat there leaning back against the bookcase and watched the record play out. It opened a window on my past. The past was a room I was looking into, and it was the same as the room I call the present. The things of this room are from the past, the same as my reasons for being here, all of which, the books, the trunk, the room, my reasons, are of the present, too. The past exists on the same plane as the present, with its wives and friends who come and go, and the difficulties of communication, and the permanence of impermanent relations, and vice versa. A few weeks ago, I had a tough conversation with my second wife, one of those conversations in which you can hear how things are and how they're going to be. There are scenes and utterances that'll be with me forever. The guilt I've gotten past. What's still standing, what's hardest to accept, is the minor tragedy that both of us are right. There's no turning back. There's no help for it. There's no one to call. There's nothing much to say about it because it just is. And it's always now. When the record was done, I swept and straightened the room and stacked some books on the bare floor. Then I went to a party that the warm weather had engendered as naturally as it brought forth the buds. Walking through the dusk, inhaling jasmine so sweet it was sour, and gardenia and other things I couldn't name. I didn't want to go. I had nothing to say. I didn't want to talk or listen to other people talk. The sky was emptying out. A bright pink contrail, which looked as permanent as a scar, had disappeared without a trace when I looked again. At Lee and Rebecca's, everywhere I turned, there were bottles of liquor and wine and mixers. There were olive spears and fruit, and everyone was mixing and sipping delicious-looking and civilized martinis and cold metal shakers and Campari and sodas with orange slices and bourbons on the rocks. But my momentary temptation to have a drink was an ember easily stamped out because it's been a long time already and I have, hopefully, a long way to go. It frightens me, the awful truth of how sweet life can be.
On Saturday morning, I folded up the bed, made a pot of tea, and wrote all that while listening to the record again. Then I went to the racetrack. I rode the train to the East Bay and got off at North Berkeley. There I left the station and crossed the road to where a cab driver was standing under a tree. There were three riders in his taxi waiting for a fourth. I squeezed in and off we went, handing money over the seat, 250 each, the usual silent brill-creamed party in a blue windbreaker who rode up front, a shrunken man in an old suit and a turban, and a sizable woman who said if she won she was going to buy a new pair of shoes. Berkeley was a few degrees warmer, a month further into spring. We rode through streets of bungalows and yellow flowers in overgrown lawns under the freeway to the bay. At the curb, we wished each other luck and went our separate ways. I took a form, program, and coffee to the grandstand. The morning was spread below me with the Berkeley Hills beyond. Sprinklers arced on the infield grass, which was mown in stripes. Slow tractors overturned the dark earth of the track, followed by the water trucks, which cooled it all down. I had a bad day out there. I got shut out of a horse that won and paid 50 bucks, and then I had two out of three horses in the next five trifectas. Pete showed up and we caught a small trifecta that brought me about halfway back. On our way out, he wanted to watch them come around again, so we stopped and waited by the rail. I leaned on the fence, watching a bumblebee hovering above its shadow on the dirt. Funny how quiet it is when they come around. All you hear is the horses breathing and now and then a whip. Today, a Sunday, I stood in the back door. Blazing sunlight had chosen a white flower and filled it with more light than it could hold before moving on. Around 3.30, I took my laundry around the corner. The shadows were shot with sunlight and the cool air carried the sun's warmth. Everyone on the street looked a little blinded by the light, like they didn't know what to do with themselves and they were waiting for it to die down a little. It's taken me four years to see that I live on the prettiest street in San Francisco. The trees won me over, the eloquent double row of elms in both directions. Those trees hang fully leafed now, slaves to life, like everyone else. I love the way it gets to the, the way a song can really like hold still a moment of time and keep it alive, you know, and as you change through life, the songs come back and they're always, you know, the same in, in, in that permanent way, you know. Yeah. And they're attached to the seasons. You know, you listen to certain records at certain seasons. Yeah. Right? You know, yeah. like every year, you know, there's a time when you pull out whatever your summer record is or whatever your fall records are. Another thread that comes into your writing a lot is Bob Dylan as well. That had to be a whole... Was that a separate discovery or was that... Already? Oh, yeah. And, and yeah, that, yeah, I found Dylan I, before, before I found the Velvets. I think the first one I got... Maybe I got Hard Rain or something from the library. I remember playing that a lot. My sister but, didn't send back her subscription card to the Columbia Record Club and got... Bob Dylan's greatest hits. And so that's the one I got after. Yeah. That's the one I went to. Uh, either I was given that or I got that. And I, that's the first time that I remember listening to something and having a kind of hearing, you know, hearing uh, like a Rolling Stone. I remember just kind of rolling around on the bed, having some kind of aesthetic orgasm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you just don't know what the fuck to do with yourself, you yeah, know? Yeah. 
I, I had a very similar experience with the with the smash hits, the Jimi Hendrix record. Uh-huh. It really sitting I remember Christmas night, like sitting in the dark in my bedroom, like after you and, got it for feeling Christmas? like I never yeah, feeling like I never listened to anything that hard before. I was really like Yeah. In, in, in I was intertwined with every <laughs> note that was going on, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um Yeah, so Dylan was you know, I always loved Dylan. Well with um, him the real connection to writing is there as well. You know, it's all about getting lost in, in, in the meanings of those lyrics. Yeah. And the way those songs are put together, you know, the way the kind of discontinuity of those songs is so liberate, liberating and exciting, which the blues is like too, right? I mean, a guy is singing about one thing in one verse and something else in another verse because these songs are just sort of put together from a common pool of verses, right? Yeah. Like somebody doesn't sit down and write one of those songs, right? <laughs> a lot of those old blues songs, you know, you know, they're gathered of bits from, from, from all places. And those Dylan songs have that same jumpiness and collage sort of feel to them. You know, that's, that, that's what keeps them so fresh. You know, they're not linear. They're, they're in the round, you know. Those are 3D songs, those songs. <laughs> and they get better and better. Like, you know, I mean, the songs that he's written, I don't know if they get better and better, but, they, but they're still great. I mean, he still writes songs that have that strong of an effect on me. Yeah. I always wanted to be able to do that in prose. Not, for, you know, not write the kind of uh, prose that, that just goes from A to B to C. Yeah. But that, that just, uh, but, but 3D or, you know, it's like a whole consciousness, you know, there's... You really hear a difference if you listen to a song by even a great songwriter you know and then you put on a dylan song it's dylan is only kind of incidentally a songwriter you know what i mean he's a revolutionary who happens to be writing songs in the same way that dostoevsky was a revolutionary who happened to be writing novels yeah. you know what i mean he's not here to advance the cause of the novel you know or the the tradition of the novel he's here to blow it up or like Cezanne, you know is is a revolutionary who happens to be a painter, but he would have been a revolutionary, whatever he did, yeah. probably. I remember you know? hearing uh, Robert Blake's talk on Tom Snyder years ago, and he, as a kid, knew Betty Davis and Humphrey Bogart, and he said they, they were remarkable people. You know, any profession they would have gone on, they would have you know been remarkable people with that profession. Really? But they, they, they picked acting. Yeah. You know? He knew them because he was a kid actor? Yeah, he's the guy who sells the ticket to Bogart in Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Oh, is that right? Yeah, I forgot about that. I remembered he was in our gang or one of those. Yeah, yeah. But he, I didn't, yeah. yeah. I mean, we must have talked about the incredible I, stories he has I, to tell about yeah. being in Hollywood. And now where is he? Uh, he's on a ranch. When I heard I, he wrote an autobiography that got rave reviews that they said was a real profound piece of writing that was kind of self-produced, which I wanted to track really? down. Yeah. So he's not in jail. He's not in jail. He escaped uh, the charges for the, the, right. the murder of his wife. Right. So are you still writing regularly? Yeah, I'm working on a novella. I, a few years ago, I wrote a I wrote a piece called Creamsicle Blue, which I published as a chapbook. 
this was, you know, I was trying to put together the kind of non-linear thing that I'm, that I was talking about, you know, like this is like the closest thing to, you know, this is the closest I've gotten to, to the kind of thing I'd like to do in a longer format. So I'll read you a few, um, a few pieces of this. The traffic lights went vivid red, then green. The sky had emptied itself of day, but night hadn't come yet. A plane and its trail were enkindled up there. The plane, a scintilla, was so bright and so distinct that it took me a moment to remove it from something small and close up to something large and far away. It made its way in living silence across the sky, an open secret. I was thinking that the only moments that mean a thing to me, like this, or like backing out of a space in a hospital parking lot with the sky in the banged up flank of a white van, were too quick and evanescent to capture in writing or in any medium, even thought. So why bother? And then I was thinking, and yet, top of the subway stairs, I run into Tony. He's taking out the garbage, putting new bags in the cans, and then we're standing outside his door. It's late on a spring afternoon, and we're standing there with our hands in our pockets, taking it all in. The people going by, and Kellogg's Diner, and the traffic, and the trees in McCree Park, which are new again, and the sky above the BQE. This light, this is the color of and yet, the color of everything outside what you've decided outside of what you know. It's like creamsicle blue. It's not even a color. It's, it's not so much a color as a, uh, well, it's less a color than a bias. What is it that keeps going beyond the scope of belief and disbelief, illusion and disillusion? It's not hope. It's life, I guess, which is everything except what you think it is. Everything except your ideas of it. It's in the way all your ideas of what should and shouldn't be disappear in the flicker of a chain-link fence moving past you, or a flight of pigeons turning in the sky, or the stones doing rocks off. Any of these can catch you just right one day and contain all you care to invest it with. Each of them is life, all of it, for a moment and never again. Yes or no, that's the question. And then there's everything outside the question, which is life. We take the Palisades, and there's New York across the river, like it was there all along. And pretty soon we're crossing the George Washington Bridge through all that vertical air, all that glory, the glory of in-between, the rapture of right now, and the gull-vaulted sky. We come off the bridge and Gene Clark is playing, and the green treetops are tossing a canopy of them down to the Hudson. The car windows are open, and the day is breathing through us. It's a kind of benediction. There are those moments when you're coming off the upper level, and you're circling. You're circling above the treetops with the river spread below, and you have a moment to reflect on it all before dropping into the chaos and immediacy of experience. How many times had I burst in from elsewhere, circled past the apartment windows of Washington Heights, and gone barreling down the Hudson Parkway, the river rising beside me? 
I feel that dream of New York again from even before I lived here. Guy changing the oil of a truck on 11th Avenue. Now I don't live anywhere except my own ribs and skull. New York is a uh, is a character in uh, a lot of your writing as well. I mean, you've uh, been back here for a decade now, I guess. Yeah, I've been uh, back here. I I, uh, I was in New York in the late 80s till about 92, I guess. And then I moved to San Francisco for 12 years or, or a little more. And, um, and then I came back here in 2005. And while I was in San Francisco, I started writing about a novel set in New York. Um, you know, just like I did when I went to London, I started writing about the last place I had been, you know, San Francisco. Um, I, I worked for a long time on a, on a novel called Ruin for Life that's never been published. I've never been able to find anybody to publish it. But, and that's about that's, New York? It's set in New York, in Williamsburg, yeah. uh, you know, in the Tell me a little 80s. bit about so talk a little bit about that novel. I, I do want to kind of hear about your your feelings about New York. I mean, it's a, such a living, breathing being. It's your, your relationship changes over time. I think. Well, I've always, I've always loved New York. You know, from before I lived here, always wanted to live here and expected to. Uh, but I'm not sure that I feel about it the same way I always did, and um, not anymore. I used to feel like New York was for everybody. You know, no matter where you were from, even if you were just visiting, you know, a tourist or whatever from every anywhere, like it was your city. New York really is like the capital of the world, as far as I'm concerned, you know. But now I don't feel like it's for everybody, you know. I don't even necessarily think it's for me. I think it's for, you know, people with a lot of money, yeah, you know. Yeah. And, and the city just gets less and less interesting all the time. Yeah, um, when they closed Bleecker Bob's a while back, and I think, were they opening a Starbucks there? Wasn't that the thing? I don't remember what they put in Bleecker Bob's, but yeah, that's the I idea. Like, i got to get back up to New York. I hear I hear great things about the Starbucks up there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> when they started pulling that kind of shit is, you know, really, um, you know, when I think maybe the first one I remember is the, um, I think it's a Kmart on, Union, on Astor Place. Yeah. But no, I, what am I talking about? There were there was a gap, I think, on the Lower East Side in the '90s. But anyway, uh, yeah, it just gets less interesting all the time. You yeah, know, yeah. it's just like they've made New York safe. You know, but what they've made it safe from is anybody having any kind of experience other than what they're used to. And people can now come up here and with the assurance that they don't have to be exposed to any of the things, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and any of the reasons why they traveled in the first place. You know what I mean? It's like I, you don't have to, they don't have to be exposed to anything. They can come here and go to the same places that, that they know about from back home, you know. Yeah, the comfort level is very high for... Uh yeah for that kind of experience exactly yeah. that's yeah. right right but yeah i remember you know I, I guess the first time i sort of came in as a as a young man was uh was 84 and uh a whole different place a whole different place you know this uh, just the 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 this feeling that anything could happen at any moment was very alive in, yeah. in the city yeah yeah in a way not so much now but it, no it, i mean i used to always i used to you used to always see things that you would say to yourself, you know, only in New York, only yeah. in New York would I be witnessing this 
insane tableau. But that doesn't happen anymore. I don't remember the last time I ever said only in New York to myself. Yeah. Um, how, how about Brooklyn? Brooklyn uh, as same well. Same story. Yeah. Same story. I don't know. I don't. I live in Williamsburg. I have a, you know, my apartment there. I don't spend much time there. Mostly now I go back there to water my plant and empty my mailbox. And when I but when I do walk around there, I like I feel like an old creep, right? Like everybody's so much younger than me that you know, I don't feel any connection to it at all. Yeah. yeah. To Williamsburg. Mm-hmm. You know, you can get a little bit out of, you know, you go to there are lots of neighborhoods in Brooklyn that still feel like Brooklyn or like, you know, our idea of Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, there, there was a story recently of a, a, a movie scout in the New York Times uh, saying that people would come and say they wanted this, you know, this certain urban tableau that they imagined as of being in New York, and they're saying that like they're not sure if that place is there anymore with you know the, those certain fire escapes and tough streets and and the whole you know. Image. Yeah, that's interesting because sometimes I think that my New York was always like a, a New York of, my, of that I put together in my head from Willie DeVille songs and Hubert Selby novels and you, you know what I mean? Like this, yeah, and, uh, uh, the Pacino film. Uh, Dog Day Afternoon. Dog Day Afternoon. Right, yeah. exactly. Like yeah. that montage at the beginning, you know, uh, kids splashing into the pool and this kind of foreshortened throng of people, you know, yeah. on, on a street. Um, yeah, that whole New York... You know, I guess that's what gets you here, is that New York that you put together from all those images. But you're right, I can't imagine that somebody's going to have those same feelings about, about this New York. Tell me, tell me a little more about Ruined for Life, the, the novel that you wrote when you were in San Francisco. I grew up with a guy who always struck me. I sort of always remember thinking about this guy as someone that you would write about. I mean, when we were teenagers, I thought that already. You know, he was a character. As much as he was a person I knew, he was also a character. You know, not everybody, not everybody does that, you know. Because he was super cool? No, 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 because just the opposite, in fact. Um, He's like, you know, he's a guy that gets everything wrong, everything wrong. He's unerringly wrong. (laughs) Um, You know, in social situations or just about what what he knows about the world. And he's also kind of a class, sort of self-abasing class clown. So they grow up together, him and the narrator, and then they don't really, you know, they don't really see anything of each other after high school until much later when now the narrator is like moving back to Cleveland because he's broke and he's, you know, addicted or whatever it is. He's crashing out of New York onto his ass. In Cle- he's back in Cleveland living with his old friend, you know, his old best friend yeah. who's also, you know, um, crashed in Cleveland and now this clown character the, whom they both knew as kids 
they will all wind up back in the same place. Except they're crashing backwards. He is only now leaving home, even though he's like there. Even though he's like thirty years old, he's now you know first time is, away from mom and dad. Right, right, exactly, right. And they're so pissed, in fact, that he's leaving home at, even at thirty that they are refusing to let him uh, hand out the Halloween candy this year. <laughs> So, you know, he's on his way up, and we're on our way down. <laughs> um, anyway, so that's the, that's the setup of the book. And that book is kind of um, another attempt to put something together in a non-linear way. So that book jumps around in time between the narrator's period in New York, and now he's living in San Francisco, writing from that vantage, and stuff about them all when they were kids so it has a lot of um you know kind of moving parts and it also jumps around a lot you know, it takes place on more than one plane of time or all the time is on one plane i guess is how it is you know so <clears throat> another somewhat length, lengthy book. book as well right it's, it's yeah a, that was uh, a thick tome yeah yeah in manuscript it's like uh 400 pages or something and I, it was, it's like one of these sort of artistic quagmires that a, that a person can wander into and maybe never out of, you know? <laughs> like it took me, I worked on that book for, I don't know, a dozen years or something. Yeah. It was like this uh, impossible thicket of... Well, you know, also I was drinking a lot at the time and... and uh, yeah, I was wondering how your life in San Francisco was affecting the, the book. Well, it was the book that was affecting my life in San Francisco. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, it was because of the book, I, I think, that I was drinking, right? I mean, I was drinking while, because I enjoyed drinking while writing, you know, so uh, at that time. But it was, uh, the book is called Ruined for Life. And it's about how each of these guys in this book is, is sort of thinks of himself as being a loser or thinks of himself as his life being over for some reason. You There's know, a passage in the book, I think, where the main character uh, talks about he would like to move into a retirement village or <laughs> he wanted to move into the, the VA hospital or what was it? it was, no, that's the first book. That's, that's Through the Windshield. There is oh, a character the who does move in with his mother. When she finally moves into assisted living, he goes with her <laughs> at 40 or something. <laughs> but uh, this, um, what was I saying about these guys? Oh, each of, each of them is kind of self-hampered, you know, self-handicapped. You know, one guy has this crippling sense of guilt over the breakup of his first marriage. Um the other guy is hampered by fear, you know, and ignorance of his sur surroundings, <laughs> you know, all of which are kind of, you know, self-created, right? Yeah. Um, so obviously the title, you know, should, is in quotes, you know, Ruined for Life. Your second one. I was curious how you, how you felt about it after, after all this time. I, you know, I think I finally got it to some degree of completion and, you know, satisfaction uh, that I was satisfied and then you know a couple years would go by where I couldn't find anybody to take to publish it and um, then I would go back to it and reopen it again and it just became this ongoing you know 
thing that I felt like I was never going to fucking get out from under. And, uh, you know, there were agents along the way who really liked it. Or, you know, I had a couple of near misses that seemed really like, wow, this should have this should have really happened. Like someone who really liked the book, recommended it to the editor, or, you know, whatever. Someone at a press, I mean, who really yeah. liked the book. But, you know, for anyway, nothing would happen. In fact, I think the last time, I haven't sent it out in a long time or really thought about it, but I think the last time I, the last rejection the book got was from someone that I hadn't even sent the book to. <laughs> they took it upon themselves <laughs> to right. tell you their, their book, your book. <laughs> I came home one day and there was a manuscript on my floor, an envelope, a big envelope with a manuscript that my super had put there, right? Because it wouldn't fit in the box. So he threw it on the fly. I opened the door and there's this fucking manuscript, right? And I'm like, now where's this coming from, right? And it was a press that I had never sent it to. It was a big press. I can't remember which one. And it was from an editor there, the letter. He says, I got this from this agent, <laughs> you know, who was also rejecting the book. She sent it to him. <laughs> and he sent it back to me. Just so I, you know, I, we're not interested in publishing it either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was like, you know, I liked it, but I couldn't convince anybody else here, you know, so I'm sending it back to you. So I wrote this guy an email. I was like, what? Now I'm getting this thing back? Who are you? <laughs> you know, how did you get this? Well, that was the thing, because he didn't tell me he got it from an agent oh, yeah. in, the, in his note to me. It was just, you know, sorry, we can't use this. So, I, you know, I haven't done anything with it in a long time. Um, but now there's, a, there's this really interesting guy in Cleveland named R.A. Washington, who's a writer and poet and kind of local literary hero. He runs a bookstore there called Guide to Culture and uh used bookstore and um and they have readings there and he's always you know trying to make something happen so he started publishing books and he wrote me the other day asking me for a novel so maybe you know maybe i'll take another look at ruin for life and see if i can you know you know make something out of it that i'm happy with as it is it's sort of i don't know I don't think I, the last time I looked at it, I would. I think I tore it apart or something, and I was going to put it back together, and I didn't. You know, it's in a state of disrepair. You know, it's like an unmade bed. This thing is like the fucking unmade bed of my life. You know how you always know it's there. Like <laughs> that's what this book is. In answer to your question. We never, got, we never sort of brought a, through the windshield to its fruition, though. You, that novel was that, published. That novel made the rounds for a long time. and Finally finished it in London, you said, uh, back at the old house? Oh, yeah. After I fi- no, no. Yeah, yeah. I worked on it. Came back, came to New York, worked on it for another couple of years and finished it in London. Came back, started sending it around. Started also doing readings around that time, you know, more regularly. <clears throat> and then never never could make anything happen with through the windshield like people who who read it a lot of people read it in manuscript yeah and Har- harvey picard uh, gave a review to it at, at one point after it was ago. published yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah calling it one of the great novels of the air 
Something like that. Yeah, that was funny. I was at my desk one day at work, and he called me, Harvey. And we'd never, I'd never met him. Yeah. You know, we know all kinds of people in common, and I even know one of the guys who drew a lot of those books. Yeah, he's been the man behind American Splendor. Right, the, right, yeah. right. So I knew one of the artists, Gary Dump. And, um, but we, Harvey and I had never met. So here I am living in San Francisco, and I'm working at this law firm. I'm like a case clerk or something, right? I'm at a desk with all these files. I'm a file clerk. <laughs> <laughs> and the phone rings, and it's Harvey Picard. And he's, he's calling me because he's been given through the windshield for review. He's writing something about it. for the. Uh, he's going to review it for the Austin Chronicle. So he wants to talk about the book. And, you know, you can't get a word in edgewise with the guy, right? So we're talking, and, you know, he's talking, and I'm on the phone with him. I, maybe an hour at my desk, at the at, you know my file desk in the law firm, which is out in the hallway too. So everybody's going by, and I'm on the phone like for an hour. So eventually, I'm like Harvey. I you know if you want to keep talking, can we maybe we can talk tonight? You know you can call me at home. And he said, well, I prefer to talk during the day because I can call free from work. <laughs> and I'm like, holy shit, are you still working? In the file room there? Like, you're calling me from the file room there to the file room here? You're still at the fucking VA hospital after... I mean, he'd been there, you know. I mean, I couldn't imagine because by that time he'd been on Letterman and, you know, he'd published a lot of stuff. I, it was so perfect to me that he's calling because, you know, he can get a Watts line or something from work. <laughs> <laughs> Back in that day, you, you passed his number on to me and said you'd mentioned my name and I should call him. And because I, I was in talking to him, it, he, you know, it came up that I said something like, well, you must get calls all the time. And he said, no, I don't. No one calls me. In fact, give my number to anybody <laughs> that you think might, might want to call me. Give my number out. I mean, he encouraged me to give his number out. And so I called him, and I'm a big jazz fan, and uh, the uh, Ken Burns documentary had played at that time, and I had big disagreements with how he characterized the sure. and jazz from the 60s and 70s. Sure, and would be a perfect guy to talk to about that. Yeah, and, and uh, I called him up, and he seemed very confused at first, and I, and I said, I'm a friend of Mike DeCapitis. I'm not sure he recognized your name when I said it. <laughs> but then I said, that jazz documentary, that Ken Burns thing, I really did appreciate his, you know, uh, his reading on, on, on Cecil Taylor right, and, right. and the, the avant-gardist. That might have been the last line I said. Exactly. For 45 minutes, he talked wonderfully about jazz, had amazing insights to give me into jazz, right, and right. then said, uh, I got to go. Give me a call back anytime. Out of the blue, and after 45 minutes, hung up. Yeah, and that was yeah, it. yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, that's just how he Big was. Big influence on me as a kid, though. I mean, it was for me, it was almost um, one of the first depictions I saw sort of as a young man of a working class intellectual. Um, that, that part's, I feel, kind of left out of the American Splendor movie, but... Uh, in the in the comic book, he talked about you know all the books he read and the sure. jazz he was into. Right, right. It was it was a, a, a character you don't see very often. In, no, uh, I don't remember where that. I mean, well, there are of course like Eric Hoffer, for instance. Yeah, but that's not fiction. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> Harvey. So, so anyway, through the windshield, did get published and did get a lot of notice. Uh, a fair amount of yeah, yeah, I published it myself in 98, which was a little harder to do then because, I mean, it just was. I mean, not everybody was publishing books and there was no internet and there was, yeah. you know. 
to promote it and there were no there was no you know amazon you know everybody publishes books now it was a little more unusual to publish a big novel you know like that yeah. not like a little poetry chapbook but a it, big a beautiful novel. job too it was a really oh, thanks. beautifully a beautiful volume you know yeah it came out again last year a press a small press in cleveland called red giant books because i didn't have any more i mean i got rid of all of my copies of the book it sold out back then that's an achievement know. yeah i mean i i think so i didn't have any advertising or anything got a couple of nice got some nice reviews mm-hmm. although i don't know that reviews do anything i remember i knew that the book was going to get a review in the in the uh sunday chronicle right so i knew because i knew the woman who wrote it and I knew that it was going to be, you know, on a given Sunday. And I remember thinking, and it was going to be a big review. Like, I mean, it was a half-page review with a picture, a big picture of me, too, right? So eye-catching, right? And, you know, like everybody has this, <laughs> everybody has this thing about the Sunday Chronicle, right? Isn't the part of it? Uh, you know, Laying in Golden Gate Park and reading the Sunday Chronicle. Right, sure. right. Yeah. And, the, and the book section, right? And... um so I just started thinking in the days before this, like, I mean, what the Chronicles subscription, uh, you know, uh, I mean, circulation, it's got to be a million people, right? Yeah. When you consider all of Northern California and Sacramento, everybody gets the fucking Chronicle, right? So I figured if it's a million people that get this thing, say only 10% of it, 10% of these people, only 10% read the uh you know book section that's still a hundred thousand people and what if only 10 percent of them read the read this piece about me that's still ten thousand people right and if what if only 10 percent of those people <laughs> you know uh you're selling a thousand books yeah i mean if and i don't i don't you know i don't know if i sold one copy of it. <laughs> <laughs> book out of that because you can kind of tell you know where like uh, where when you get an order from a distributor i mean i didn't get any big orders from distributors no big bump after there that it was a brave review in the chronicle right yeah. didn't do a thing <laughs> selling selling fiction it's hard it's hard but i it was a happy experience publishing the book i mean i eventually sold them all and you know until you have a book you don't really feel you know you, you really don't feel like you can call yourself a writer, you know. I mean, after a number of years, you just start to feel like a forty-year-old virgin or something, you know. <laughs> if, you, if you don't have something published, so anyway, so it it uh, it was a good. I'm glad I did it. Um, and they're like little uh, messages in a bottle out there. Who knows where they'll drift up and who will read them? And you know, that's where right. Go. That's right. That's right. Uh, you know. Yeah, I've got. I've heard from people in, you know, in un, unexpected places about what that book means to them. It seems to be a book that people like to reread. Yeah, and I can understand that because it's just episodic, and it's just a, maybe a place that you want to go back to again. And you know, going into it, there's no plot. The guy's yeah. already talking about the weather 
on page one, you know, or, you know what I mean. This book is not going it's in, anywhere. It's in the way that Citizen Kane is is rewatched. That's how I like to think of it. Then <laughs> is that <laughs> I like to think of it with the nonlinear thing? And no matter how many times I've watched Citizen Kane, I'm never quite sure where it's going next. I'm never quite sure right, right. where the pieces fit together. Sure. And with, and with your book, you know, it's not like oh, right. I'm into this part of the plot now. I know how this is all going to roll out. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know. Right. Yeah. So, what, 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 were there any relations that were formed through through publishing the book? Uh, what, what was the best thing that came out of publishing the book for you? One of the good things about it, about publishing it, was then I had a reason to do more readings, and that book lends itself easily to um, to readings because um, it's you know it's lots, lots of dialogue in there and just short pieces. Um, so I started doing a lot of readings in San Francisco, and that became a regular sort of part of my thing, you know. Well, to really give yourself a community of other writers and stuff, I think right. that's, that's what writers really need. They right. Really need I didn't. I didn't meet anybody in San Francisco really until I started, you know, started doing that. And there's a great community of, or you know, there was for me. Yeah, the Dan. Uh, Danny Leon. Dan Leon. Yeah. Yeah, was running a series at uh, a reading series at at a coffee shop in the Mission, and I did a reading there, and I met my whole next circle of friends all just from that one one reading at the um, Paradise. Is that what it was called? Not Paradise the Paradise Lounge. Yeah. Paradise Lounge, right mm-hmm. upstairs. You used to run that series, didn't uh, you? I didn't run it. I would guest host it for Jennifer Josephs, who uh, was the publisher of Manic Tea Press, right? Which is still running Manic Tea Press. No kidding. Are yeah. they still in the Mission? Still, uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. The Paradise Lounge, wow. I think, is gone, but but the uh, uh, Tea Press lives on. Does, uh, That's unbelievable. You'd expect the publishing house to be gone and the bar <laughs> to be still there. <laughs> um, Amber, Amber Tamblin, the actress and Russ Tamblin's daughter, she just published a book on Manic Tea Press uh-huh. out of San Francisco. Memoir? Uh, no, poetry, I believe. Oh, uh-huh. Yeah. So what are you what are you writing now? What what is this? Uh, you said you were working on a novella. Well, my yeah, I conceived it as a novella, but now I don't know. Maybe it'll turn into a novel. I have a way of letting things you know go on. <laughs> Who knows where it'll be in twelve years? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, so you know, but I but I I very consciously wanted this to be an extension of Creamsicle Blue. So I want this to be uh, something with that's kind of modular, you know, something that feels like it's random, feels like if you just threw all the pages up in the air, it would be just as good if you put them in any other order, you know. Mm-hmm. That you know that's that's hard to do. It's hard to pull off, you know. But uh, <laughs> but uh, but anyway, so that's my idea. And right when I started working on this, I quit smoking. So I instantly, which was real part of my writing routine. And uh, so I instantly developed an aversion to sitting down at that at that uh, table, you know, with with my typewriter. And I just thought I'm going to have to find some new way to write now because I, this smoking is such a integral part of this. And um, so I thought, well, I'm just going to 
I'm just going to kind of write spontaneously in notebooks. You know, I never was, I never carried a notebook. All right. Mm -hmm. There wasn't someone that was always carrying a notebook and writing, writing things in a notebook. But I thought, now I'm just going to do this because I can't bear to sit at that typewriter, you know, without a cigarette. So, um, so I started gathering material and I thought, I'm just going to, you know, gather material for a couple of years and then this is just going to all cohere somehow, you know. And this will be very easy. This will be a very pleasant way to write a, a novella, right? This is my next work. I'm I just, could write this on Twitter. That's exactly right. Yeah, I could, exactly. I could do this on Facebook. Um, you know, this is going to be just a... This is that is, still the plan? I'm laughing, but is that still the This is the no-sweat method of, you know, <laughs> writing a novel, right? I'm, like, finally hitting... You know, I'm telling myself, you know, you get to a certain age. It should be easy now. You should... You know, you've done enough writing. Now you've finally... You know, you found what, we've all, what you've always been looking for, what everyone, everyone is always looking for in writing, which is, you know, like the magic... What's going to be the magic thing, right? The <laughs> stardust that makes this easy, you know, and so I finally found it. You know, this, this is what you do. You just gather material. You sit in parks. You know, you're a flaneur. You go, you sit on benches. You float around in the public gardens, right, <laughs> with a notebook. You know, you know, you stop on the way to this to make yourself a sandwich. You stop on the couch. You know, and and scrawl a few. You know, a few words that people need to hear. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. How's that going? Something that someone else might find <laughs> useful. Anyway, so after like two years of this, I realized this is not going to cohere. And it's what am I talking about? Like somebody's got to put this fucking book together. So that's what I started doing. Like only like, like last uh, November, I, start, I sat down and started sitting down every morning. Yeah, I still can't go to the table. I uh -huh. still, now I go on the couch, on the computer. You know, I don't want any kind of ritual surrounding this, you know. Because yeah. the one piece of advice that my old man gave me, when he didn't talk much, as I said, he never talked about, he never talked about writing. But he saw me smoking for the first time, you know, like the first time I came home with a cigarette or something, and he was like, you know, you should be really careful. Don't, don't get any kind of, anything else mixed up with your writing. You know, don't make a habit of anything, you know, with your writing. And I wish I would have, you know, taken that. It would have been great advice to follow. <laughs> but I didn't. Did the opposite. So, anyway, anyway so I had all these, you know, fucking uh, attachments to the process of writing. You know, whiskey, music, cigarettes, this special ashtray, you know, wh whatever. And so now that I didn't have cigarettes, I wasn't going to have any of it. Uh. And I still don't. I, so what I'm saying is, I'm still. I just. I still can't sit at the table every morning. Now I, I get up and you know, kind of resentfully do a little writing in the morning. <laughs> Before you go to work. Before I go to work. Yeah. 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 And, and I'm always happy that I did it, and it always. And it's. It's kind of coming together. I'm looking forward to having a first draft of it done, so that because that's kind of when the fun. Yeah. You know, that's the fun part moving it around and you know you've already kind of built the bridge and now you just have to paint it you know <laughs> you've already done the workout now you just have to do the posing routine <laughs> <laughs> right now you just have to adorn yourself <laughs> grease yourself down and stand the way you want to stand <laughs> um, can you give me any details on the on 
It's a love story. Thematically, it's an yeah. autumnal love story. Mm-hmm. So it's about love and mortality. Uh, let me read you a little uh, short piece from it. I woke to the sound of a shovel scraping the sidewalk below. Last night, I'd walked her to the subway in a blizzard, which was also the year's first snowfall. Snow swirl. It snowed upward, went spiraling down side streets, broadsided you at every intersection. Someone was laughing, but you couldn't look up. Then she was laughing, standing in a drift. She had a certain pure laugh that sounded like life to me. She'd stop walking and just let it go, like we were standing in a rowboat that was going down in three feet of water, and it was the funniest thing ever. She was able to laugh at herself, and she did it naturally. There was no self-regard in it. And in that laughter, I heard all of life, why we live, even though we suffer and even though we die, why it's still worth it. Headlights floated by. For a time, a skinny young guy fell in step with us. He was holding the remains of an umbrella over his head. He looked like he'd walked out of a Roadrunner cartoon. He asked where we were going. When we crossed the road to drop off a movie, I said, you're on your own. We heard him through the snow looking for a new friend. He didn't seem to have seen snow before. She said, he must be from California. I missed her, even with her at my side. She'd turned me inside out, or I'd turned myself inside out for her. I felt like my heart was on the outside, beating. There was never enough of her. I could never get close enough, never possess her completely enough. As though there were some measure of completeness beyond complete. Something new, something beyond now. Something in the realm of the imagination, some essence. I felt as though maybe cannibalism was the answer, to kill and eat her right there in the snow. She claimed to feel exactly the same, but these things are hard to know. I kissed her at the subway. She was just a nose and a smile encircled by a snowy hood. I told her to hold the rail and watched her down. The walk home was desolate. Outside my hood it was nearly silent. The only acute sound was the snapping of a plastic tarp on a motorcycle. By the time I made it to my door, my coat and scarf were white. I waited for the elevator with the snow melting off me, missing her something terrible. Once inside, I locked the door as though to protect what remained of her presence there. The screens were clotted with snow, and there were five inches of it on the outside sill. I hung my scarf and coat and gloves in the shower dried my hair with a towel, and went to bed, listening to the radiator. The room hung with orange snow light. And this morning, I lay listening to the shovel on the sidewalk, and then silence. My heart was still on the outside, beating, waiting. Beautiful piece. I heard somebody talking recently, and they're talking about youth, and they're saying, oh, at 20 years old, everybody's a poet. Uh, as you get older, uh, finding that the, the things that inspire you so much that you, you want to write about them, is, is, that a, is that something that you still grasp easily? Well, I never was really the kind of writer that, you know, I don't really write fiction. You know, I don't have an idea for a kind of, you know, a whole plot, you know. Um, I, I mean, I... It's a much more, um, you know, my impulse to write is is uh, descriptive, first of all, rather than narrative in large part. I don't really, uh, 
No, I'm, 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 I've never had a, I've never, ideas for stories have never come easily to me. Yeah. But, um, but if down. I'm working on something, then I'm sort of seeing the world in a, as all potential, you know. I mean, I'm always on the lookout for something. So I'm more observant. So I write more, you know, because I have this, you know, open brief, right? I have this open project, right? That, that causes me to, um, you know, invest the world around me with my imagination, you know, in a way that I don't if I'm not working on something, which is a reason to keep working on something because, you know, once a while as it closes, then, you know, it might be a while for before something knocks you on the head as being worthy of your, you know, description. It's nice that uh, at this time you find love to be the, uh, the thing you want to describe and, 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 and want to write about. Yeah. Uh, it's a surprise to me. I mean, Creamsicle Blue is, I was sort of in the middle of writing what I thought was a manifesto about <laughs> living on your own, you know, forgetting about love and, you know, all that kind of, you know, trouble. You know, just finding, it was, <clears throat> it's like a manifesto. I was envisioning it as a manifesto. I thought to my, that I, that's what I was writing. It was like was the this, last thing you were writing? That is this the, the ultimate proclamation, the manifesto? Or? Well, manifesto, yeah. Well, I don't know about the last thing I was writing, but it was about the, uh, it was like a declaration of purpose. You know what I mean? Like yeah. from here on out, I'm done with all this nonsense. And uh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be unfettered and I'm going to go it alone and, you know, I'm seeing through this bullshit, you know, about love. And uh, so I was just putting this together. I ran into an old friend, and she said, guess who I just ran into? June. And uh, we should all have dinner together. I met June in the 80s, but hadn't been in touch with her for 20 years, 25 years, I don't know. And June came to this uh, dinner talking about how she's in the middle of getting a divorce. She never wants to be in another relationship can't wait to have your have her life back you know never getting involved ever again <laughs> and i was like you know right on you know i hear this and we stayed up talking about this till like three in the morning and then it was too late for either of us <laughs> or you know maybe i didn't realize it yet that night but you know you know like i remember like encouraging her when she was talking about all this, you know, an independent life, I mean, I was give, I remember recommending a uh, Vivian Gornick book of essays called Approaching Eye Level, I think, uh, which are essays about living in New York as a woman of a certain age and, and keeping yourself free of romantic attachments and, you know, especially in New York. You know, I said, this is a perfect book. I'm going to recommend this to June. You know, so I'm telling June about this book, and like two days then later, I'm thinking, holy shit, I hope she doesn't read that fucking book. I got to... <laughs> so anyway. So she's so been an inspiration. She's been an inspiration, sure. And that's what caused me to want to write this book, which, which is, um, you know, has the, all the hopefulness of romance, right? But, you know, there's... But now, all of a sudden, you feel, you know, if you're my age, you feel like but there's not enough time to live this thing out, you know? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a different feeling. Yeah. You know, it's shaded with, the, with mortality. In a way that young love is not. Yeah. yeah, right, hopefully. 
So I'm looking forward to, you know, like I said, having a first draft of this done. Um, and I, it's, uh, you know, there's pieces of uh, snatches of dialogue from the gym. You know, it's, it's not all... It's not all love and weather. (laughs) (laughs) Erica Melissa just moved to the San Diego. Oh, really? Yeah, after all those years in San Francisco and, you know... They just couldn't fucking stand it anymore. They just couldn't, yeah. just too many assholes. <laughs> I mean, that's really the reason. Yeah, I talked to some sweet young girl there who was uh, coming in on the train. She was like 23 or something and wanted to work in animation, I think. And she was living all the way at the end of the BART line and, you know, was someday hoping to be able to live closer to the city. But uh, I just thought, like, ah, oh, that miserable thing of, like, moving 3,000 miles in order to live, you know, 15 miles from where yeah, you want to right. be. Yeah, Yeah, just because you still have some idea of a place that's not there anymore. Be like moving to New York. Yeah, yeah. So many of the places really aren't there anymore in San Francisco. You know, the record stores I went to, the movie theaters I went to, like... So many of those institutions really have dried up and gone. I guess it's been 15 years. It's no surprise. But, you know, the character of that city is just changing so much. Yeah, yeah, sure is. I remember early on when they were opening some big box stores, like out towards... Uh, South of Market or something. Yeah, yeah. And I said, it's kind of like they come from the suburbs and they're bringing the suburbs with them. And that's exactly what they do. Yeah. And that's what they've done here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it used to be that the most interesting people from everywhere would move to New York. Now it's that the least interesting people from everywhere <laughs> move to New York, yeah. and they bring their thing with them. They bring their whole <laughs> least interesting thing with them. I don't have a lot of negative uh, feelings towards uh, the younger generation, but I did meet one of those younger people uh, this week that really made me... Uh, you know, take a take a breath. It was a guy who had a, a picture of a mandolin on his arm, and I'm a like, tattoo tattoo a tattoo of a mandolin on his arm. And I was like, "Wow, you know, that's that's cool. You you play mandolin. I I love mandolin." He's like, "No, I don't play. Yeah, I, I should probably learn someday." Oh my god! <laughs> Fuck you, man! <laughs> like you felt so strongly, you had a tattooed on your arm, but not so strongly you would physically oh have one in the real world. God, you know, we just went up. We just spent a, wood, a week in Woodstock, and we were poking around all these towns. You know, little towns like Hudson and um, Saugerties and Catskill, Catskill, the town of Catskill, yeah. and um, Kingston. I mean, it's all the same. You can't get away from yeah. from this kind of thing. You know, <laughs> either. <laughs> It's like everybody, everywhere, everywhere, everywhere is the same now. Yeah. I mean, those same uh, people are up there from Brooklyn now moving into those towns. Anyway, I don't have much to say about them. I just wish they kind of would stay out of my way with their, you know, when I'm trying to walk down the street and they're just texting or whatever they're doing. Or, you know, when they invade the neighborhood here dressed as Santa Claus, which is a new thing that happens every Christmas. You know? Really? It's like waves of asshole Santa Clauses. Really? Drunk 
asshole Santa Claus is <laughs> descending <laughs> on the, uh, you know, below 14th Street. Yeah. We have a zombie bar crawl that happens in which people all dress like zombies and get drunk and go from bar to bar along South As if Street. they're not zombies in the first yeah. place. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> As, as you know, you get all the there's that natural uh, measurement of our times, you know, against their times or you know earlier times. Uh, that historical perspective comes in, but but uh, what is your perspective on the, the the times we're living in right now? They do seem to be very specific and intense in a lot of ways. I don't. Where know. do you think the United States is going to be in ten years? I, I just I, I don't you sort of just feel like everything is just getting worse and worse and this is like a feudal state feudal police state that we're going to wind up living in I mean I don't have any I don't have any hope for you know the, this as a you know as a political system yeah do you yeah. I mean it's just what could what what would change it what would change it from its course of you know these fucking corporate monsters running this country into the ground. <laughs> There's these corporate monsters and their political puppets. You know, what, what's, what's ever going to change that? What's the countervailing force, you know? It's like it's right. hard to, to really nail what's going to, you know, put a stop to this style of life that really can't go on forever. Yeah, I, the extinction of the species. That's the countervailing force, or that's what's going to stop it. I mean, I, I, do you really, I mean... This country, anyway. I don't mean that. I don't feel that way necessarily about the whole world. But yeah. I mean, I just um, it's, 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 this political system is so corrupt that I, I, you know, I can't imagine what could ever change it. Yeah, they talk about you know the first step on change is getting to convince people that the political system is corrupt. I feel at least we're that far. <laughs> you know, across the political spectrum. Right, right, right. Like right and least, left. Right, like nobody can be under any illusions about it. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, things often change when people least see them coming as well. I wonder if there's something that's happening that, you know, we just can't even yeah. see. Yeah, well, you know, you're, end. yeah, you're right. And plus, what did I just read? That, you know, that life is everything ex- except your ideas of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So obviously, you know, who am I to say, you know, if it's my idea that, that this, uh, you know, this country will destroy itself, then that's probably not what's going to happen, since that's my idea. My mother, who's 85, often says, I got here right at the right time. <laughs> like 1930, she was born, you know. Right, and right. She's like, but in reality, like, she really did get here at the rise of empire. Like, of course, things are exciting and rich, and there's economic development going on as an empire right, rises right. i think we've sort of peaked at that point and the, you know the empire is on decline and i think my mother feels the same way yeah she was born in 1930 yeah so yeah my, you know my father had a you know pension till the day he died that you know my mother's still collecting you know i don't know many right. people that have no know, i can't imagine large pensions that are going to feed in at no, this point no it'll never happen i mean maybe, i don't know i can't imagine what would cause it to happen yeah you know or anybody, you know, who wasn't so bought already that would try to make it happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Didn't you just start being embarrassed to be? I mean, even even before you're, you know, even though you already know, like what this country is all about, you know, and everything, <laughs> it's a while before you're embarrassed. Yeah. You know what I mean? You just, yeah. But it it took Bush, I think, to to really 
make me embarrassed. Although I guess maybe, probably I should. If I'd have known more, I would have been embarrassed earlier, <laughs> right? I guess if I would have known more, I would have been embarrassed to be uh, an American under Reagan. Yeah, but I've sort of become much more aware uh, the idea, like meeting uh, people from other countries and realizing what their perceptions, what the, what the, what they you know what the, what their assumptions are of Americans, you know, mm-hmm. through what they read in the media and, and that whole thing, and I realize like, oh, that that is that is embarrassing. You I know, always like, think they're so forgiving. <laughs> like imagine, America's sway over people's imaginations is so strong. Yeah, yeah. That even people who have every reason to hate this country, yeah. still have a kind of a you know a mythology about an affection, it that, for, an affection for yeah. it right yeah that that uh counterbalances their you know feelings i mean it's like they seem very forgiving of us <laughs> maybe it's those years <laughs> of hollywood films right, you know? right. <laughs> maybe we have jimmy stewart and clark gable right and harrison ford right and, you know right. all those people to and think. rock and roll yeah and you know all, yeah movies it's yeah. about the movies i think yeah I was thinking uh, just this week about uh, about giving it all up and and, uh, and becoming Peace Pilgrim. Have you ever heard, heard of her? Yeah. Well, I just saw a picture of her. I think on your page. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. She she. Uh, I think she got a divorce when she was in her forties and just decided that she had a. I think she had some sort of like religious experience and decided that she was just going to go walk the earth until the peace came and did it for the next. 35 years, I think, and walked back and forth across the United States seven Did times. Did she die? Yeah, she finally died in a car accident. But she didn't have any, any she didn't keep any... Uh, when was this? From the 50s to like the 80s. She spoke about peace from town to town, but no they said she, she wouldn't, uh, just had a few things in her pocket. It was really, somebody said the hardest thing in the world was to give her something because she didn't want to accept anything because she didn't want to have to carry, carry it. it. Yeah. So she just existed on the kindness of strangers. Yeah, you know, she said she wouldn't ask up. for she wouldn't eat until she was asked if she wanted to eat. She wouldn't uh, ask for a place to stay. She would always wait until she was invited. And that's how she lived her life like a bird. Well, incredible. Yeah, yeah. Like Keep that ver- beautiful verse in the Bible about the <clears throat> you know the lilies of, of the field. Or whatever, yeah. That you know, yeah. So you were thinking about that, huh? I was thinking about giving up. Thinking about just walking out the door one day. <laughs> <laughs> Keep walking. I heard Bob McChesney, the political commentator, once listened to somebody give some very uh, uh, tragic forecast for where we were headed, and he says, "So what should we do? Should we just give up and go home and watch wrestling?" <laughs> <laughs> Like that's what we all would seek. That's what we all want to be doing. Yeah, wait for mom to bring us a grilled cheese sandwich. <laughs> oh, you didn't hear that Mountain Goats record, right? No. New Mountain Goats record about you know wrestling. Oh yeah. <laughs> I was so into that as a kid. Wrestling. You must have watched wrestling as a kid. I didn't watch it, but I had a, my best friend watched it, and so I, you know, kind of just by proximity to it proximity to that little black and white you know tv um i i remember names like you know moose cholak and haystacks calhoun yeah and the chic 
Sheik might have been a little later. And yeah, that, um, well, it's funny because they—I mean, back then uh, wrestling was still uh, broken into sort of divisions, and the promoters had areas. <laughs> so uh, you know, I would read about the Sheik in wrestling magazine. Oh right, right. Why were they? Cle- that was a Cleveland. He didn't. Uh, well, he, not, at that point, he, had, he wasn't wrestling in Philadelphia. So I had never got a chance to see him. I right, only right. saw the, the bloody photographs and yeah. you know, wrestling confidential or whatever. <laughs> Haystacks Calhoun, very popular in our area. Oh, you the, remember him? The big splash. Yeah, he would. Right, right. <laughs> Right, he was. He must have been what five hundred pounds or something. I think there might have been a, an Australian pair called the Kangaroo Brothers or Twins. That sounds familiar something like too. That. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wasn't into it myself. I was far too sensitive to be into that. Yeah, band. you said you were too. You were. You were made. <laughs> you were saddened by the Three Stooges. I was. I wasn't. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know what it was now that you're mentioning that? I'm, I can picture a scene in which they all kind of, I don't know whether they knock some guy over and they all run over him on their way out the door. And one of them says, so long, sucker. And I thought that was so hurtful. <laughs> it wasn't the stuff, you know, it wasn't the violence. It wasn't the poking each other in the eyes and hitting each other with boards, you know. And this is like to speak against the Stooges from Cleveland. You know, yeah, Cleveland is like yeah, apostasy, yeah. right? Yeah, sure. Because, you know, but uh, I mean, the Stooges informed the sensibility of a whole, you know, the Stooges and Goulardi, right? You know about Goulardi? Like yeah, the, the, uh, the, the, the TV show the host. Friday night host. Yeah. I guess yeah. it was Fridays. He later, later the announcer for The Love Boat, I believe. That's right. And the very, Love Boat. Yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson's father. Crazy. Um, everybody's Everybody's got a connection all those people successful in Hollywood oh, I Paul Thomas were, Anderson I thought you were he uses say. Goulardi connections to get where he's at I thought you were going to say that everybody's got a Goulardi in his life <laughs> like everybody's got a, a Goulardi tucked away in a closet somewhere anyway yeah so so, so the Stooges yeah. yeah yeah it was not you know it wasn't it wasn't the physical violence it was the you know running over this guy and saying so long sucker <laughs> You know, the way you talk about it, it sort of sounds like I just uh, remembered Auschwitz, that. you know. Oh, I just, I just <laughs> remembered that. I just remembered it. I remembered that I didn't, I mean, I knew I didn't like them when I was a kid. I mean, because, probably because I just saw through to, you know, these deranged old racetrack, <laughs> you know, rats. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, that they really looked like, right? My my, I showed him to my son when he was relatively young, and he was just like, didn't get it, and he's like, "Who's the good guy here? <laughs> <laughs> like, whose side am I on? I don't exactly. think on any of these guys' Ex- side." <laughs> exactly, exactly. He summed it up in a nutshell. Yeah, that's it. Um, I don't know. I mean, I <laughs> thought I was a sensitive kid as a kid, but boy, you know, I certainly had a taste for you know the Stooges and oh, wrestling yeah, and all that. I loved the Stooges. Yeah, I don't know. I just the, the wrestling thing must have looked. You know, I mean, I never understood it as theater. I thought, yeah. you know, I would. <laughs> you know, it is theater. The only you know, way to understand down, it, yeah, right? Right to the dumbest level. Yeah, <laughs> but it, but everybody has it, right? I mean, it's across yeah. all. I mean, All everybody cultures, has yeah. has this theatrical kind of yeah. thing too, right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. There was uh, some beautiful pictures of uh, working class Mexican wrestlers, where the women wear right, right, full uh, uh, dresses that are down to their ankles and stuff, but yeah. they're still jumping off the ropes. 
doing all yeah, that Yeah, you can see on the walls here. I, I've got several uh, beautiful photographs by Ted Barron, who uh, he was taking pictures documenting this scene in a very kind of noirish style um, in the in the 80s Yeah, they look 90s. like they could be uh, stills from the 1950s or something. Yeah, they look like stills from uh, Night in the City or something like yeah. that. One of those, uh, you know, and... Um, uh, yeah, so these are from the Puerto Rican wrestling scene around Williamsburg yes. and the Lower East Side on the in the in the eighties. <laughs> so it keeps coming back. Yeah, I, I still get a little sad when I, I see the obituaries for those wrestlers who I'd watched. You'd as a kid. like this record? You, I bet he's well. He was from California, so you probably don't. You wouldn't know his people unless from the magazine. I was an aficionado, like as a kid. Like I want to learn more about this oh, wrestling yeah. business. Who am I, talking I better to get some here. magazines. You probably knew every obscure wrestler in the world, right? <laughs> am I, what am I thinking? Right. Um, so yeah, you'll like you'll uh, yeah you'll you'll like that record. It's called Beat the Champ. <laughs> Should we wrap this up? And, sure, uh, sure. I mean, if you think we got enough. I think we do. Okay. And thanks so much for uh, speaking to us. Uh, yeah, thanks. Here. It was fun sitting here with you while it gets dark outside. <laughs> That's it for our show. Again, thanks to Mike and June for making space for the Fun to Know podcast. Thanks again to Frank Bellina for his technical wizardry. You can catch past episodes of the Fun to Know podcast at SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We have a musical guest waiting in the wings, so check back soon. You can catch me spinning jazz Mondays at 11 a.m. EST at WPRB Princeton. You can read my film reviews at Falker.com and check back again for more fun to know. We're free, I tell you. So wake up. It's time. You know, <laughs> that I could just walk into a record store and said, "Yes, I've owned Sticky Fingers now in seven formats." You know, four of which were CD reissues of the reissues of you know remasters or whatever the fuck you guys need to do every three years, re-release your whole catalog. You know, so fuck you can you. refine that snare sound maybe a little yeah, bit more. Yeah, yeah, and add a bunch of crappy songs that you added words or vocals to later, and you're trying to pass them off. As outtakes, you know, <laughs> fuck you. I'm not so done with that band. There's a new Keith record coming out. I know, I know. I've been seeing pictures of him everywhere with his skull ring and his teeth. 
You know what I mean? He's got like those like those white teeth of an old businessman now, you know. <laughs> and, he's, and he's got that skull ring in every fucking picture. It must be in his rider. You know? When he goes to a photo shoot, you gotta make sure you get the skull you ring. The skull ring, have you got that? And like Keith, we know you smoke, okay? You don't have to have a cigarette in every fucking picture. It's like he's too much it's 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 like a yeah. Anyway, I'm not that excited about that record, but I'll buy it. You know, yeah. I'll still. I'll you try, still there's buy a new. Uh, isn't there a new Bill Wyman record out now as well? I think. Yeah, I, I read know, a terrible how, review. How deep of it. in the in the in the hole you want to go? Yeah, no, I read a terrible review of that that yeah. one. It's him like doing old rock and roll covers or something. Jesus yeah. Christ! I think I think that's what I it think is. You're right. 